0: Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I am your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible mindfulness teacher and counselor, Victoria Bertini. Hello, Victoria, and welcome to the show.
1: Hello, Zach. I'm real happy to be here with you.
0: Our topic for today is mindful self-compassion. But before we get into that, Let's learn a little bit more about Victoria. Victoria Bertini is a teacher, mentor, and counselor with a passion for guiding people on a path to loving and holding themselves with tender compassion. A dedicated meditator for over 40 years, Victoria's teaching and counseling journey has included work with teenagers, university students, and adults. A previous director of a comprehensive health program, Now Victoria regularly leads groups, courses, and classes on mindful self-compassion, an empirically supported skill development program for cultivating self-compassion in our daily lives. How are you doing today, Victoria?
1: I'm really good. I'm real happy to
0: be here. I'm really happy you're here too. And I can't wait to learn about mindful self-compassion today. I wanted to ask you how you originally got into meditation. Because nowadays it seems like meditation is everywhere and you have smartphone apps and you see mindfulness on the cover of magazines. Back in the day, it wasn't always so popular and it was often seen as something cultish or for crazy hippies to do. So what originally got you into meditation?
1: I was a crazy hippie. No, <laughs> I wasn't. But I think what actually it's been a, I think truly a lifelong journey for me. It started as a child. I was brought up in a very strict, devout Roman Catholic family. And I actually think that this journey started in church, not with the the dogma or the liturgy, but in those quiet moments when all was still. And when I would be in retreat through the or the church. Those moments of quietness really resonated in me. I loved the silence and I loved how often answers to questions came up or problems were solved. And probably today I'd say that that was my intuition speaking or my compassionate friend giving me advice. In those days in the Catholic faith, they would have said it was the Holy Spirit. And then when I went off to college, I met an upperclassman who was very into yoga and meditation. And Serena taught me a lot about yoga and meditation in those days. It was really foreign, especially in a Catholic old girl's school. So we would just go off into her room and she would share what she had learned back in Bombay. Um, she even gifted me with a book that her grandfather had given her on yoga and meditation. I just loved it. I I can't explain why. I just did. I, I loved sitting in the silence and seeing what my brain was doing. And then from that experience, I explored the works of Eknaf Iswaran. He's written quite a few books. And what I loved about Iswaran, was that he took a very global approach to spirituality? He wrote books on Hinduism and Buddhism, and Christianity. I believe he was the first person to offer the first four credit course in meditation at Berkeley in 1968. And I was taken by his work a lot, particularly his book called The Unstruck Bell, which focused on a mantra, you know, having as your anchor the word or the words as opposed to the breath as it is in the other meditations. And from Ishwaran, I then found myself knee-deep in the works of John Kabat-Sinn. It was the early 90s, and he had just written Full Catastrophe Living. And I remember just being so curious about his work. And Full Catastrophe Living gave guidance on guided meditation. And From John Kabat Zinn and all his books, I started exploring the works of Jack Kornfield, Sharon Salzberg, Joseph Goldstein, and the Travasana viewpoint, the Buddhist viewpoint on mindfulness. And I was particularly touched by Jack Kornfield and Sharon Salzberg's work because they were so human. They spoke from the heart, they write from the heart. And Sharon's book in particular, Faith, really resonated with me on this journey of life that Full of so much discomfort and pain and insecurity. And we just don't always know where we're going and we want to be in control. Her work just really touched my heart. And Jack's also, he's a beautiful writer. The Lamp in the Dark was the book that really, really opened my heart and, and let my tears flow. The meditation can be a lamp in the darkness and really help us to anchor ourselves. And from their work, I became interested in compassion and then self-compassion when I was introduced to the research studies of Kristen Nass, who started her research at Berkeley and now is a full professor at the University of Texas, Austin. Also, Christopher Germer, who worked in tandem with her in developing the Mindful Self-Compassion Program. He's a clinical psychologist in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He lectures in the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard. And their work's really spoke to me because my background, my college background is in psychobiology. And I am so fascinated with how the brain works and particularly how compassion and self-compassion can help to rewire our brain in a positive way and really enhance our immunity and decrease a lot of our negativity. That's been my adventure so far.
0: And quite an adventure you're describing. It's amazing to hear mm-hmm. your journey across so many years, mm-hmm. hearing from so many different teachers and also many teachers that are now quite famous, you might say, and many people know of mm-hmm. Jack Kornfield and Sharon Salzberg. And it's quite fascinating because I also recently got into Eknath Warren. He has this wonderful compilation called God Makes the Rivers to Flow. And it's just mm-hmm. a compilation of some of the world's greatest sacred texts and scriptures about love and spirituality. And it's amazing to hear your story, also uniting your own spirituality, how you first found the stillness in church and then found the stillness within yourself in meditation. And you have been meditating for a long time now, and I know there's a lot of people who struggle with sticking to a meditation practice. And I wonder what your advice is for somebody who maybe has tried meditating here and there. Or they meditate, you know, really hard for like in a month and then they get tired of it and their schedule gets in the way. And what is mm-hmm. your recommendation for somebody who tries meditation, but it never quite sticks?
1: Well, the first thing I reassure them, is don't be hard on yourself. It takes practice. It is a practice. It's helpful to have a teacher or someone who you're comfortable asking questions of, And in meditation is simple people often get stuck when their breathing is rapid uh they seem to think sometimes that, that they have to just be sitting there watching their breath and it's running away from them and that feels really uncomfortable even when you're an experienced meditator so i reassure them that sometimes that happens that sitting meditation is not the only form of meditation that we can start focusing uh sometimes with walking meditation Sometimes even just being mindful of washing your hands, being present in that moment. That too is the meditation. Or using a mantra or a word, uh, like loving kindness. And I always go back to just letting people know it's being easy with yourself. The mark of a good meditator is not how often your mind wanders, but how tenderly, how lovingly you bring it back to the breath or to your focus point. It's the work of the mind to wander and it surely will again and again. As people practice more, then we talk more about, so where is it wandering to? What's here? What are you experiencing? Um, We build on that. But don't be hard on yourself. That's the very first thing. It just takes practice.
0: Mm, Such a lovely piece of advice. I love what you just said that the mark of a good meditator is not how often your mind wanders, but how tenderly and lovingly you bring it back. Because I think a lot of people do think of you know, a meditator as someone extremely focused and extremely concentrated and bringing in the element of the heart and bringing in an element mm-hmm. of tenderness and love. And that ties directly into today's topic about self-compassion. And before we get into self-compassion, let's just talk about compassion in general. So what is compassion, first of all?
1: Compassion is the feeling that arises when we are witnessing another person's suffering. And that suffering motivates us with a desire to help. Compassion is when we want to help someone ease their suffering. When we want them to feel better or to be held with tenderness, knowing that they're not alone in their suffering. It's a warm feeling.
0: So if compassion is the feeling that arises when we witness another person's suffering, how is that different than empathy?
1: Empathy is the sense of feeling another's suffering as if it were your own. You you walk into a room with sick people and all of a sudden you realize that you're feeling their suffering. Compassion is the capacity to empathize with the addition of warmth and kindness. So empathy says, I feel you. And compassion says, I hold you. I hold you with warmth and tenderness.
0: Empathy says, I feel you. And compassion says, I hold you. Mm -hmm. So we add the final element. We have mindful compassion. So why should we also Mm -hmm. bring mindfulness into our compassion practice?
1: Ah, well, mindfulness is the wisdom practice that allows us to notice painful experiences in our own body and to hold them tenderly. And mindfulness invites us to be aware of what we are experiencing and to attend to our experience with loving kindness. We become aware. Another word for mindfulness is simply awareness. What's here for me? What's here for you? We can start on the physical level. Is there tension? Is my body tight? Am I hurting somewhere? And then we can explore that mindfulness, that awareness on a, an emotional level what am I feeling? Am I sad? Am I happy? Am I discouraged? Am I frightened? So mindfulness is is the awareness.
0: So now we can turn this mindful compassion to ourselves and practice mindful self-compassion. And I know many people struggle with extending love to themselves, despite all the, you know, cliches we hear in our society around how you have to love yourself before you love other people. But we often Mm -hmm. aren't told what that actually looks like. So what is self-compassion and what does it look like?
1: Self-compassion looks like, ah, just releasing. It looks like letting go. It looks like a healing balm. We feel it. As Michelle Becker, who's a wonderful couples counselor in San Diego, points out, she says, when we embrace our pain with an open heart, a new state emerges, a state of loving, connected presence. And when the loving, tender, healing power of self-compassion joins forces with our desire to reduce or alleviate suffering, we can thrive in the midst of challenge and change. And that's what self-compassion looks like. We're just holding our pain with tenderness, with lovingness, reducing our suffering so that we can thrive.
0: Amazing quote. When we embrace the pain with an open heart, a new state emerges of loving, connected presence. Mm-hmm. And earlier you mentioned the research of Kristin Neff. And there is some really mm-hmm. exciting research around the benefits of both mindfulness, but also self-compassion. So what does the research show about the power of self-compassion?
1: Well, the research shows that people uh, with high self-compassion tend to be more self-confident and motivated to improve after failures or mistakes. They take greater personal responsibility for mistakes. They engage in more health-related behaviors like healthy eating habits, exercise, taking breaks from their work to refresh their brain. They have more strength to cope with challenging life circumstances and they experience more caring personal relationships. And self compassion is linked to quite a few reduced negative states, such as depression and anxiety and shame, which is universal. Shame is a universal emotion. And they have increased positive states, like happiness and life satisfaction. And we know, even through the COVID 19 pandemic, that people that have higher levels of self-compassion, have better immune responses. So they're more likely to be healthier on many levels. Also, people that have high self-compassion have a reduced risk for caregiver burnout, which is really important for healthcare workers or anyone even attending to a family member who's sick. When we give and give and give, we are at risk For burnout, we need to learn these skills of self-compassion so that we can fill ourselves up to be able to help others.
0: Such a simple practice has so many profound effects on our Mm well-being.
1: I find it fascinating that women tend to be slightly less self-compassionate than men.
0: And why do you think that is?
1: Because I think culturally we were raised to give and give and give. And I know within my own culture, it was looked upon as selfish if you took time for yourself. You always put every, your family, in particular your friends, first. And I think women are kind of acculturated to that. So it comes as a surprise to learn that we, we actually need to take time for ourselves to be able to help
0: others. Right. You're encultured mm-hmm. to give compassion to others, but of course you forget yourself. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm. Exactly.
0: So in the research and in the teachings, we say that there are three main components to mindful self-compassion. What are those three components?
1: The first component of mindful self-compassion is mindful, to be aware. The second one is our common humanity, that we are not alone. We are interconnected and that We're culturally brought up to think that our suffering is very unique. And yet, when we begin to share what we've experienced or how we've been hurt, we're often quite surprised at how many other people have had the same experience. So, we have the awareness, the mindfulness, and self compassion, the common humanity. And the third portion of it is kindness, loving, tender kindness that we attend to ourselves with.
0: The first component being present, mindful, and aware. Second component Mm -hmm. is a recognition of our common humanity. Let's talk more about Mm -hmm. that because I'm sure many people who are continuing to shelter in place do feel a sense Mm -hmm. of aloneness and do feel a sense of personal struggle that they're not able to share with people like they normally would. Mm -hmm. So how do we cultivate that recognition that we're all in this together. Because I know sometimes I see those billboards or those commercials that say we're all in this together. And I'm like, really? Are we? Because. <laughs> 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 so if we're cultivating right. mindfulness, you know, how do, how do we cultivate that sense of connection? Because many people feel even a sense of divisiveness, particularly around politics, for example. But there's so much disconnection right. and division. So how do we cultivate that sense of connection with our fellow brothers and sisters?
1: It's a really good question. In the mindful self compassion program, we have what we call a self compassion break that says that this is a moment of suffering or I'm suffering at this moment. And suffering is a part of life, which is the common humanity part. And then may I be kind to myself in that moment. And the way that I've been so Wonderfully encouraged by the calming humanity part lately, I'm leading a meditation at seven o'clock in the morning Pacific time through the Center of Mindful Self-Compassion, and there's quite a few volunteer meditators who are doing this. And in my early morning sessions, there are on average seventy-some people on these calls, and afterwards we have a moment, a few moments, like maybe fifteen minutes to to share. And it's so uplifting for me when people start saying, oh, I feel that way too, or I thought I was all alone in this. And I help them weave this piece of common humanity. That's why I think community is really important in meditation, Why like sangha is important. And in my classes, of course, we we talk about this common humanity, and we set it up in a way so that people do share. And I haven't Ever taught a class where people weren't surprised that, although they felt unique in their suffering, that actually someone else has had an almost identical experience. But through this pandemic, with this big Zoom meditation in the morning, my heart overflows as people are beginning to really see the interconnectedness, this journey of life. Yes, we are all suffering in one way or another. And our suffering is often shared by someone else. One of the biggest detriments to self-compassion can be our inner critic, you know, our judgment, our critical self. By taking time to share, to be in community, to meditate together, that helps to bridge the gap in feeling isolated.
0: I want to talk about that critical self that you just brought up because when people do look inward, that is often one of the things they discover is how we are often our own worst critic. And we often say things Mm -hmm. to ourselves we would never say to somebody else because it would be far too cruel, right? So how do Mm -hmm. we shift from being our own worst critic to being self-compassionate?
1: Well, first, we take the time to just listen in to our inner critic. What is it saying and and what's motivating it. And one of the first things most people hear is the tone of their inner critic. It's generally very harsh. It's a harsh voice. And most of us understand at some basic level that that harsh voice wants to help us and keep us safe. The way around it is to reassure it. And we start that reassurance by talking to it in a calm voice, and thanking it for wanting to help. This is a very primitive part of the brain, the inner critic. It has lots of experience with problems and it's warning us about a potential problem and it uh, has the capacity to project that problem into the future, which may or may not be a problem. So the first thing we do is we talk to it in a calm, tender voice and we thank it and then we can make space for our compassionate voice, which is a lot calmer. And it's our compassionate voice that can motivate us to find solutions and make changes. Our self-critic may be well-intentioned, but our compassionate voice will support our desire to change. One way to tap into your compassionate voice is to pretend that you are writing a letter, you're sitting down and actually writing a letter to yourself, just pretending that you're your own best Friend and addressing whatever this personal concern is that you have at the time. And a compassionate letter is often a reminder of the care and compassion that you can give yourself. You want to hear words and feel words that you would send to your own best friend. And the reason why we use these soft, gentle vocalizations is because they're one of the universal triggers of compassion. There are three universal triggers of compassion. One is soothing touch, you know, and that can be just rubbing our arms or a hand to our heart. The other, soothing vocalizations. And the third is physical warmth, being warm, being loving.
0: So many wonderful things you just said. The first one was that we recognize that our inner voice and our inner critic sort of has our best interest in mind. For example, if we're like aiming at a target and we miss We hear that inner critic, right? That judgment. And it's trying to correct our course a little bit. Right. Mm -hmm. So we think it. And I think that's such a huge step, right? It also seems really challenging Mm -hmm. to think that inner critic. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then we bring... It the... is, but Go with ahead.
1: practice, it gets easier.
0: Uh, okay. <laughs> and so we thank it and we practice thanking it and we bring in that loving, tender kindness and that compassionate voice inside of us. And then you mentioned the three universal triggers, so soothing touch, soothing vocalizations, and physical warmth. So tell our listeners more about that. When you say these are the universal triggers of compassion, what do you mean that mm-hmm. if we do these things, it automatically creates a compassionate response?
1: They do. They do, even if we don't think they're working, if we don't feel them. We know that when we give ourselves soothing touch, often it's just putting a hand on your heart, you know, feeling that affectionate awareness, that desire to bring compassion to yourself, maybe even saying to yourself, oh, sweetheart, that hurts, or I'm here for you, honey. I'm here. I care. I'm sorry you're suffering. And maybe even just a little hug, that kind of physical warmth that you can give yourself. These actually stimulate the parasympathetic section of the brain that releases the kinds of hormones that bring us down, as opposed to the stress hormones that come out of the sympathetic nervous system. When we use soothing touch and gentle vocalizations and warmth, the parasympathetic brain will release these chemicals. And we may not, if we're highly stressed at the moment, we may not actually feel them right away, but they are being released. The research shows that. And so with continuous practice of that, we become even more aware of it in time. They will trigger a sense of calm, sense of compassion. These are the same things we do with a baby who is suffering I just came back from three weeks at my son's uh, taking care of my, my youngest granddaughter is a little over a year old and she's cutting teeth. And so what do you do? You pick her up, you hold her, you rock her, you gently rub her back, you whisper sweet things to her. You're giving her calm and they calm down. And just because we've grown up into these big adult bodies doesn't mean we don't still need that same kind of tender attention. We do. We do.
0: Yeah, I was thinking how much easier it is to give compassion to something like a child or a baby and applying that soothing touch, soothing vocalizations and physical warmth. It's a very natural thing for us to do. But then when you mentioned put your own hand on your own heart and say those same mm-hmm. things to yourself, just the idea felt a little vulnerable in mm-hmm. extending that to ourselves. And I'm wondering if you could give us an example where you yourself gave yourself self-compassion. So far, we've been talking a little bit abstractly around, oh, when something happens, we can apply these things to ourselves. What's an example Mm -hmm. of perhaps from your life of when might be a good time to apply self-compassion?
1: So about six weeks ago, in the midst of this pandemic, a really good friend of mine who was spending the night here in my cottage, had been suffering from a lot of anxiety because of the pandemic. And like most other people, I too have had my bouts of up and down anxiety. And that night, I heard him (laughs) yell out that he had a fever and he was sneezing and coughing. And from the other room, I could feel my heart just take off in automatic fear. One was, oh my God, does he have this virus. And two, oh my God, he's here. Will I get this virus? And number three, in a couple weeks, I was hoping to fly east to help my son and daughter-in-law with three little girls. Well, I had lots of anxiety and I calmed myself down by saying, okay, this is a moment of suffering. Suffering's a part of life. May I be kind to myself in this moment? May I give myself the compassion I need? So I went through the phrases of the self-compassion break several times. I put my hands to my heart. When that wasn't helping, I rubbed my arms a lot. Then I, I actually fell asleep for a few minutes. But when I woke up, he was gone. And there was a note that he had taken himself to the hospital. That created even more anxiety. And I realized as I was sitting there, okay, so I may not sleep tonight because my heart is pounding out of my chest, but I can sit here and be kind and comfort myself because this is scary. This is scary. There's anxiety here. There's fear here. There's projection into the future. I had to remind myself that I don't know what this is. He may be sick. He may not be sick. Maybe something else. And in fact, it was something else. But I sat there until five o'clock in the morning, just giving myself soothing touch, speaking to myself like I would to my best friend. I know you're scared, honey. It's okay. This is what happened. You know, this is a new environment. Can I just be kind to myself? Can I just sit here? It's okay. It's okay, honey. And that's how the night went. And I was able to stay calm. I could see my thoughts. Ricocheting around my brain, and I could see them without getting hooked into them. I wasn't going to take that ride down, you know, what was going to happen. I wasn't going to catastrophize. So I just had to sit there with the beating heart and the fear and whatever else came up. But that's a very recent experience (laughs) where mindful self compassion was a wonderful skill to have.
0: It's such a beautiful story. And I think it really helps because a lot of people are also feeling anxious around our current Mm -hmm. times. And it's also a very simple approach, but very profound, particularly because it Mm -hmm. goes against like our normal tendencies around problems that we experience. When Mm -hmm. you mentioned you're anxious, I was thinking how often we might run or numb such an emotion like, oh, I'm feeling Mm -hmm. this come up, so I'm going to turn on the television or I'm going to distract myself from it, or I'm just Mm -hmm. going to try to numb it perhaps by Mm-hmm. Substances or something like that, but rather than mm-hmm. running away and rather than numbing the sensation, you' actually be present with it and I imagine mm-hmm. there's a level of courage that it takes to be in such a vulnerable space with oneself
1: absolutely, not that I'm you know saying that i'm <laughs> <laughs> but it it yeah i am i can be i can appreciate that part of myself and I'm going to admit that, yeah. It, it takes courage. It took courage that night. I could have turned the television on. There were a lot of things I could have tried to do. But my practice is to be present with what I'm feeling. And so that was that was a night where I could look at it as an adventure. What's here for me? There were a lot of things. They were flying in all different directions. But that is what meditation brings to us. As we're learning about ourselves, we have all these feelings. We have all these kind of conditions that come through our brain. We are not our thoughts. We are more than our thoughts. And I don't have to believe all my thoughts. And one of the nice things about this practice and what I did that night is as feelings came up, I named them. So I named fear when it came up, I named catastrophizing when it came up. And we do that because when we name of feeling, we can tame it. It's funny the way the brain works, and there's research to support this. Just the fact of naming, oh, that's fear. It's almost as though the brain says, okay, I hear you now. What we resist persists. So if I keep pushing away the fear, if I kept pushing away the fear, it would have shouted at me even louder. So by naming it, my brain could say, okay, I hear you now, I can let go of that. And sometimes it let go just a little other times in a bigger way. But the brain acknowledges that it hears, that you're aware of what's going on there. So you name it to tame it. And what you feel, you can heal. So just by saying it, you begin the healing process for it. That helps a lot in learning those skills through mindful self-compassion.
0: So many beautiful mantras. We can name our emotions to tame them What we resist persists Mm -hmm. and what you can feel, you can heal. Mm -hmm. It's really incredible to hear your experience and also hear that you're continuing to practice being present with what you are feeling. And I think for many people, they're like, oh, maybe if I meditate for long enough and practice for long enough, I will have no problems whatsoever. (laughs) of completely healed and completely tamed all my experience but of course that's not what happens right so what changes and shifts in our internal experience should we expect when we start to develop our self-compassion in other words what differences do you see in highly compassionate people versus less self-compassionate people
1: Well, you will see that highly compassionate people are willing and able to take more risks because they're not afraid of failure. They're more self-confident, Okay, whereas opposed to people that do not have a lot of self-compassion, they rely a lot on self-esteem and self-esteem is pretty material. And if your self-esteem falls, then you feel like a failure. and You're very hard on yourself. You're feeling very unworthy. People that practice mindful self-compassion are willing to express themselves in positive ways, knowing that, yes, they are suffering. They're not going to kind of kid you that there's no suffering going on. We do suffer just like you do. But we can hold our suffering with compassion. And the fact that we can hold ourselves with compassion allows us to be present for others in a more caring way. It gives us an opportunity uh, also to be more resilient. We're also more productive because we're not afraid of failure. We can make mistakes. We can move on from them. The research in self-compassion just keeps growing and growing. We know that there's a link between happiness from the research of Emma Sepala at Yale and self-compassion, that self-compassion provides us with this Skills that actually allow us to feel happier. And we feel happier because we're able to savor the positive experiences. You know, people that are not self-compassionate will complain a lot and often miss the positive experiences in their lives. Self-compassionate people will savor the positive experiences knowing that they will be further embedded into their brain. Self-compassionate People can express gratitude more easily, knowing that gratitude also helps to increase our happiness quotient. And we can also, uh, little by little, learn self-appreciation, that we can recognize within ourselves what we appreciate about ourselves and even be able to name them and share them because we're not the only person responsible for our good qualities. We realize that we have good qualities because of other people in our lives, whether it's the genetics of our ancestry, to the cultural conditioning we had as children in our environment, to the families we come from. But all of our experiences, good, bad, or indifferent, actually contribute to the good in us. And we can appreciate the good in us. Because we're not taking responsibility as though, oh, wow, look what I did. It's what my, my life has allowed me to become. And so those are just some of the things that highly self-compassionate people can address within themselves.
0: Just some of the things, just more happiness, more resilience, <laughs> <laughs> savoring the positive, gratitude. <laughs> and I also love what you just said, that all of our experiences contribute to the good in us. It all becomes grist for the mill. All the dirt turns into our own growth and all the mud turns into the lotus. Well, we are running a bit low on time. I appreciate you sharing with us this powerful tool of mindful self-compassion and I hope that we can all bring more of it into our daily lives, particularly during today's challenging and unprecedented times. And to close out, I want to ask you a question. I love to ask all of my guests, which is quite simply... What do you wish everyone knew about love?
1: Mm, great question. Well, I wish that everyone knew the power of self-love, self-compassion. If we could all bring a felt experience of warm-hearted tenderness to our daily struggles, and if we accepted in the depths of our heart that others are suffering too, we would connect with others in a very loving way. Way. Love softens us and helps to abolish separation, judgment, and criticism. And that's what I wish everyone knew about love.
0: Love softens us and abolishes separation, judgment, and criticism. Such a warmth to your presence. And you can tell that you've done this work you've been practicing for a long time. And we are so blessed to have you share these teachings with our listeners and, of course, with your own communities. And for those of our listeners that do want to learn more about you and work with you, how do they find you?
1: They can find me on my website, lagunameditation.com, or they can also find me on the Center for mindful org's website. And thank you. This has been such an honor and a privilege to share with you. Um, I appreciate your work and your podcast. The world's going to be a much better place because of people like you, Zach.
0: Oh, thank you. My heart feels quite warm. Good. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you again, Victoria, for coming on to the show. And thank you listeners for listening to the show. We hope you bring mindful self-compassion into your life. We hope you remain present and aware with whatever it is that you are feeling. We hope you give yourself the kindness and love that you so deserve. We hope you remember that love softens us. And there are a few things as powerful as self-love, self-compassion. And we can all bring a warm, hearted tenderness to our daily struggles. If you want to learn more about me, you can head to ZachBeach.com and learn more about the show at TheHeartCenter.com. Thanks again, Victoria.
1: Thank you, Zach. Have a great day. Thanks again for
0: listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to ZachBeach.com or TheHeartCenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.